Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Before we dive into this episode, I have a huge favor to ask. Since you're listening to this podcast, and thanks so much for doing so, it would be a huge help if you could hit the follow button. This simple action really makes a difference in having our podcast get found in search results and placed higher in podcast menus. Thanks so much. On this episode, I'm joined by director Denny Tedesco to talk about his enthralling music documentary, Immediate Family, which is a follow-up to his acclaimed 2008 documentary, The Wrecking Crew. That earlier film followed the first wave of studio musicians in the 1960s, including Denny's father, guitar virtuoso Tommy Tedesco. Immediate Family takes up the story where the wrecking crew left off, taking a deep dive through some of the most famous and influential session musicians of the 1970s. To that end, the new documentary includes commentary from the likes of Carol King, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, David Crosby, Jackson Brown, Lyle Lovett, Keith Richards, Don Henley, Stevie Nicks, and Phil Collins. The film will be released theatrically on December the 12th and will be available on video on demand on December 15th. In addition to talking to those musical legends, Immediate Family tracks the rise and collaborations of session musicians Danny Korchmar, Leland Sklar, Russ Kunkel, and Waddy Wachtell as they help craft some of the decade's most enduring hits. Denny Tedesco's documentary reveals the machinery behind the booming era of the singer-songwriter, when the talents of these four musicians were in furious demand. It also looks at their friendship and artistic partnerships. Here's the trailer. In the early 70s, you couldn't pick up an album and look at the liner notes without seeing these guys' names. I would buy records just because they were on it. The creative input of these session guys cannot be overstated. It can't be overstated. Russ Kunkel. Danny Korchmar. And it's too late, baby, now it's too late. Lee Sklar. Waddy. They were just musicians we knew, and they gradually became legendary session musicians. My main goal was to not get fired. (laughs) (laughs) Tapestry, the whole thing was done in three weeks. Three songs in one day, and we didn't piece together the best. No, it wasn't overdubbed. Look, we were all in our 20s. Now, there was no sleeping. Each album became like a, what's the next thing they're gonna do? Not only did they give birth to this music, they're as much the author of these songs as the artist they did it with. Ego goes out the window. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I have a huge ego. Well, <laughs> you can walk across the water. I could get hipper, younger people. In, in this hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these are the people that play it best. I can express an admiration for these guys. Four truly great players, all of them masters of their instrument. In hindsight, I was just happy to be there. I've got a band full of brothers that love me. I'm proud of all of it.
Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. Now on to my conversation with Denny Tedesco. Hello, Denny Tedesco. Welcome to Making Media Now. Oh, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are you uh, speaking to us from today? I am in Los Angeles and Woodland Hills where I live. Uh, I kind of grew up in the area, so I haven't left. I haven't gone far. That's nice. You were at home. Well, you were certainly in the right place to uh, put together this amazing documentary, Immediate Family. So right out of the gate, I want I, I want to ask you, who and what is the Immediate Family? Oh, right. Well, the Immediate Family is actually technically it's a band, you know, with a bunch of guys in it, and the guys that are in it are it's, they're legendary rockers, session players, and it's Leland Scalar on bass. Russ Kunkel on drums, Danny Kochmar on uh, guitar, Wadi Wachtel on guitar, and Steve Pastel on guitar. And the first four guys basically are the guys that were at the beginning of the singer-songwriter era. They came in when um, James Taylor was doing Sweet Baby James and Carol King was doing her tapestry. And these guys started there. They got the roots. They're, you know, they got, that's their roots. That's and their from roots, that yeah. point on, they never stopped. Yeah. And the film, the documentary, which is also called The Immediate Family, uh, you know, which is just a great wall-to-wall music, wall-to-wall uh, engaging visuals of the era from the 70s into the 80s and this list of participants that you got to speak on camera and yeah. address the role of these musicians talk about a who's who of the 70s and 80s you've got jackson brown and james taylor and carol king and linda rodstad and don henley and phil collins and keith richards and Stevie Nicks, and, you know, I could go on and on. But yeah. before we dive real deep into the immediate family, you are particularly well positioned to tell a story about the life of session players, as they're referred to in the music biz. Right. Um, you being the son of Tommy Tedesco, and this is your second film about session players. The first yeah. one was the massively uh, successful and really critically acclaimed film called The Wrecking Crew, which came out back in 08. Uh, so it, as the son of a session player, what kind of mental notes were you drawing upon when you decided to A, make the first film and then B, say, you know what, I think I'll do that yeah. again? Yeah, good point. Or why would you do it again? <laughs> Um, well, the first one, Wrecking Crew, was a story about my father and his, and his friends in the 60s, who were the session players that did all the work for the Beach Boys, Sinatra, Janadine, Mamas and Papas, Sam Cooke, Fit Dimension. Anything that was done in L.A. pretty much had session players in the 60s because the labels didn't trust the band, meaning like the road bands or whoever they had set up. Even Pet Sounds was all of uh, the session players. Yeah. And it's hard to believe, but that's the way it was, you know, but these session players in those days went in for three hours at a time. You had, let's say, 
at nine o'clock to 12, you had one session at one place, then at one o'clock to four, maybe another. And that's how they kept bouncing around. And they were so busy that they just created such huge hits and content forever. Um, the business needed them and and they changed how rock and roll was recorded at the time. Well, then the end of that era starts a new era because it comes in around 1968, 70s. Uh, the new guys come in. My dad's era is kind of on its way out as rock and roll is a different animal, totally different animal. Yeah. You don't need my dad anymore because you know what? You got you got Danny Coachman, you got Waddy Wachtel. They're playing the rock and roll of today. Right. And, you know, and they're much better musicians in those days than the early musicians, meaning like the band guys. Um, so these new musicians come in and they start and they just take over where my father and his friends left off. When you were growing um, up, I, how, how, how yeah. old were you when you got a sense that, oh, my, my dad's job's a little different than, you know, no, the, the lawyer I, or the I plumber or the realize, guy who works yeah. at the deli? I always wonder why it was funny because I remember, you know, it's funny you asked that. The kid across the street, his dad was an accountant. And I remember being jealous one time because they were going on vacation. <laughs> I think we went on vacations too, but I don't remember why I was jealous. <laughs> um, why can't my dad be an accountant? And, um, and really The lament funny. of every kid. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, spoil a little brat. Um, but, you know, dad went to work like any other dad. It was basically instead of tools in his his trunk he didn't have a saw or hammer he had a telecaster he had a mandolin he had acoustic he had the classical and that's what he went to work with i didn't realize i always it was just like oh yeah dad's a guitar player that's all right you don't, right. I never saw him play because he never practiced i'm born in 61 so in 61 you know in 65 and all those years the young years of my life he's in his heyday of rock and roll or recording on records. Yeah. So I never saw dad play at home. He didn't need to play at home. He didn't need to practice. That's what when, when you guys were driving around, you know, grocery store, going to school, going to sports, whatnot, yeah. and music came on the radio. Would he say, Hey, that's me? No, no, I know. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's, it's really odd. Um, maybe my brother would have known a little more cause he was 10 years older than me. Yep. But I didn't really catch on to my father until the Partridge family came out and friends said, your dad's on the Partridge family album. And that's yeah. the first time that I start seeing my dad's name on albums that I could relate to. Right. Right. You know, don't forget his name wasn't on any albums in the sixties, very seldom, you know, unless you were, you know, buying them, but very seldom. So having grown up, obviously, around your dad and the other session players that made up the Wrecking Crew, uh, and then obviously delving into lots of conversations with the musicians that are in the immediate family, have you been able to arrive at any kind of personality profile of oh, what yeah. makes a great session player? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's very fun. That's a great question. It's funny because they all have... You know, you could be the greatest guitar player or the greatest drummer or bass player in the world. But if you can't get along with people, forget it. Yeah. You know I mean, I don't care how good you are. Um, it takes a lot. I mean, because you, you're working with each other. You know, you, as, as, as someone playing an instrument, you're listening to each other. You're talking to each other with your instruments. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on with musicians that, 
you know, you got to get along yep. and longevity will make your career, you know, your career will have some longevity if you're not a total, um, I can't even say the things I want to say on this. podcast. <laughs> Let's but, just say difficult to work with. Yeah. Difficult to work. I mean, it gets around, it gets around, you know, sooner or later. So, and so it's like, what a pain in the ass. Yeah. You know, um, but you also have to be, you got to read a room. Uh, musicians are always constantly, my dad would go into a session and especially session musicians are totally different than um, let's say live musicians or, you know, totally different. He sits, he goes in, I asked dad, I said, what is it like? He goes, well, you got the door closed. You don't know what's behind the door. He goes, you walk in, you sit down, there's a piece of music there and they want uh, banjo or they want mandolin and they want uh, a rock and roll. They want, he goes, I got to come close if they want the best classical person, you get a Segovia or you get, you know, if you want the greatest blues guy, you get BB King, but don't ask BB King to play mandolin. Don't yeah. ask BB <laughs> King to read the music because these guys can't read. Probably a lot of, you know, musicians don't read music. So my dad has to become uh, a chameleon. Um, and that's one of the, as, um, one of the things that many of these session musicians are, are chameleons. They got to come close to what they sound. Now where Wadi and Danny are different. Well, Coach Marin in, in the next era, they're asking them to sound for themselves. They're asking, Hey, we want Wadi for what Wadi does. Yeah. Same thing with Danny. We want yep. Danny for Danny sound. Yep. Uh, you know, one thing I found interesting uh, in the immediate family is that it, it's kind of ironic that so many of these session players that, you know, really helped shape and form the sound of what came to be known as the Laurel Canyon sound and the yeah. Southern California 70s rock. A lot of these guys were East Coast guys, and they kind of brought that East Coast edge, that East Coast hustle and swagger. And it particularly yeah. comes across with Danny uh, Korchmar uh, and with Wadi. Oh, absolutely. Those two are hilarious. <laughs> They're just so funny because you asked about the other thing about traits. A lot of sense of humor with these guys. Yeah. You know, they try not to, you know, there's a point of that. Yes, there's ego and there's also you don't want to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Um, so I love when they laugh about themselves. You know, there's a great story with Wadi. It kills me is he's goes to a liquor store, you know, he's, and he walks in to get a pack of cigarettes and he hears a uh, lonely boy, you know, the Andrew gold song and sure. what he kills it on this solo in this album. And he walks in and he realizes that he doesn't have his wallet for the, buy the cigarettes. And he goes, and then he's hearing the song. He goes, do I tell the guy that's me on the radio? <laughs> You know, to try to get the cigarettes. And he, yeah, whatever he, works. He, he goes, nah, I can't be that big of a chump. And he walked out. <laughs> but, well, and, you know, Wadi's an interesting character, too, because he has most definitely maintained the look of a rocker across okay. the decades. Like, you're not well, going to. And Leland. Look at Leland. L L Leland, yes, that beard. I mean, and it's the greatest thing is Leland, like he says in the movie, I haven't seen my upper lips in 65. Yeah, but you know what's really interesting in that conversation, too, is he he alludes to the beard as almost being a shield of sorts. Yeah. And Leland's a really interesting character because Leland, all these other guys, we all know what were the 70s like. You know, it was rock and roll. It was party. It was, you know, 
survival of the fittest. But, you know, some people unfortunately didn't survive the, the drug era and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Leland has never touched a drug in his life. Leland That's doesn't drink. He doesn't do anything. He, in a lot of ways, he was a lot like my father. He had these, I could tell they like to be uh, in touch with themselves and in uh, command. They don't like to be out of, um, out of control. Yeah. That, and that's why I look at Leland and my father, who is a fabulous studio guitarist and could read. And those two did not do any of that stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, but boy, he looks like the rock and roll rebel. Another uh, kind of differentiator of the um, of the musicians that made up the immediate family is they went on to actually be touring bands with Absolutely. whether it was with James and Taylor that, or Jackson Brown. Huge difference. Huge difference between my father and those guys. My, when in the 60s, my father in 1996, 6, 67, 68, you know, in the mid 60s, that's the heyday for L.A., because the charts have flipped at this point. There is so much work in L.A. that you you couldn't tell. They used to say you couldn't tell how busy you are by how much work you were doing. You could only tell how much work you turned down. <laughs> Interesting. That was, so to take a road gig, it wasn't worth it. You never took a road gig because it's not going to pay you that much. Maybe a couple hundred bucks a week. That kill you. You know, they were making that in a day easily. Um, so they didn't do that. And then what happens is these guys come around, the touring changes. Now they got monitors. They're hearing themselves. There's more money. Now LPs, it all comes together. Record companies start doing LPs. FM radio starts pushing LPs and that whole genre of music. Yep. on long form long yep. no the the i remember the genre the uh, aor the uh, yeah. album album oriented rock where y that's how you really as a fan that's how during the 70s and it kind of petered out in the 80s when they went back to more uh, uh single orientation but that really gave the music lover an opportunity to develop a relationship you know with the artists and yeah. it allowed these session musicians to really shine because sometimes yeah, it turns out the you know the deep cuts where we're the treasure oh my god it's funny because you're doing the film on uh, doing the research on this film you know it's been many years because you get so used to going to Apple or Spotify, or whatever, yeah. playing, you know, you put on, you know, your favorite songs. And I have the LPs and I start listening to the LPs now and go, oh, my God, I don't even remember this song. And yeah. it's killer. Yeah. You know, and that's the greatest thing. In those days, they sequenced, you know, they made a big deal about creating and producing an album that had some cohesive sound you yeah. had one producer you didn't have 10 producers on an album and you had you know just maybe a couple writers but there was cohesiveness and there was they took time on hey we're gonna get this number one this is number two this is number three and we got five songs six songs on the front side okay you got to get up and turn the album what are we going to come back to on the back side the b side so there was this thing yeah, and you put you you kind of nailed it when you mentioned sequencing because there was an art to that sequencing. Like, no, this isn't a second song. This has got to be the fourth song, or you know, really important on what do you lead the second side with, and then what do you close out the album with? Yeah, and it's funny because we all did it as kids when we were making our mixtapes. Sure, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you wanted like, to create an experience. Yeah, 
I mean, we were just doing what they were doing. It just, you know, took us, you know, differently. And it was fun. You know, it's funny. You know, I'll bet you today you could probably hear a song. Let's, I don't know, let's say off of one of these albums and go, wait, Van Morrison is a great album for me. I, Cause I have it inside my head all the time. Yeah. That album, if you play such and such song, I'm waiting for crazy love to come next. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I know what the next song is, even Absolutely. though it's on the radio, I'll never hear it. Yeah, it's like muscle memory. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Your head. So when you finished up the Wrecking Crew, and I, I, I remember reading that the Wrecking Crew was was about a six, eight year, uh, year process for you to make. Nineteen. Um, Nineteen. Nineteen. Was it that long? 19. Yeah. Nineteen. I, maybe I was just Let looking at the production schedule. Let me make schedule. sure I, I correct you on that one because that was, <laughs> it took me. The trauma still shows. Ninety six when my dad was dying, and I tried to get it made, and I had some footage that I shot with him and some others, but no one would ever help me because they said you're never going to make that much money for this film. It's going to make this much when it's going to cost way more than that. Yeah, and so no one helped except for. Um, I, I did all the wrong things. I did, you know, B of A, Wells Fargo, American Express. I did all the credit cards and that finally stopped. But once I got the film made in 08, 09, we got into festivals extremely well, but no one again would help out paying the rest of the half a million in licensing. So basically I had, it was real people, you know, fans around the country. I'd play the film, show them, I'd get sponsors. I had people sponsoring songs. I had people, you know, anything and everything I created. And then by 2015, Magnolia Pictures came in. They said, oh, oh, yeah, you're finished? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm finished. So given, given that that was such an arduous process for so many years, uh, what made you want to take the leap again and to you know tell the, yeah. uh, a similar but very different story with a whole new group of, not just new group of musicians, but a very different um, music landscape that you're, you know, bringing yeah. to life. And I think, well, that was the, that was one of the reasons it was different. It wasn't a copy. Right. Um, there's a, there is a link to it in so many ways. The reason they're called immediate family is Danny had, was asked to put a band together and they, he, they wanted to call it Danny Coachmore band. He said, no, 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 I don't want to be called that. He goes, call immediate family. Yeah. You know, it's my brothers, you know, right. my friends, uh, and he goes, so what he ended up doing was, you know, created a band and that's what it became. So when they told me about this, I heard about the band. I already knew about it, but I already knew these guys' names. I mean, I knew Leland personally, but Cooch, these are the names I remember off of albums. Cooch, yeah, which definitely. is Danny Coachmar. Yep. Uh, Russ Kunkel, the drummer. Mm -hmm. Wadi Wattel, Leland Scalar. The names are so you know, already they're not Bob Smith. Right. Uh, nothing wrong with Bob Smith's playing, yeah. but, um, but you know what I mean? There was something about it and I always remember them. So I thought, and then, and if you remember at the end of wrecking crew, I went to, you know, Phil, well, Phil Spector, I'm sorry. Uh, Lou Adler. Yeah. Who did produce the mamas and papas and Janet Dean with the wrecking crew. And then, but his big album was tapestry with Carol King in 71. I said, did you change your sound, you know, after, you know, when you came around, did you stop using the guys and, you know, change the sound on purpose? He goes, oh, absolutely not. He goes, no, Carol King brought in her friends, James Taylor and Cooch. Yeah. yeah. So there was this kind of like, okay, this is like someone laying it off to you. 
Okay, and then the other line I have at the beginning of the movie was in my the Wrecking Crew. Um, this is the story of my f- father and his extended family. Right. The Wrecking Crew. Yeah. And that is the theme, I think, of both films. It is about family. It's about friendships. It's about how do you deal with your own personal lives at home? How do you deal with each other on the road? You know, yeah, they've made some great hits, but there's more than that. It's, it's you know, where are you at now in your life? You know? Tell me a little bit about the process involved in uh, compiling all of the, the folks that are, the you know, the um, legendary singer songwriters that go on camera to sing the praises of these guys did you have a did you have a wish list and then just started checking it down or how'd that work it's most most i mean it was all obvious because you know yeah you got carol you got james you got jackson you got linda right off the bat you got all these you know you go there was so many obvious ones and then you start going you go and this was people think oh my god how'd you do it usually the the what do you call it the gatekeeper is the hardest thing to get through to an artist through the you know the person that's stopping you absolutely there was nobody because these guys would make a call carol said absolutely linda said absolutely james jackson it was so fast i'm telling you michael it was like the craziest how fast it was and i wish every job was like that i wish every (laughs) project i could say you know because I send these letters out begging for George Lucas, please, Mr. Lucas, I, you know, this is me, da, da, da. you know, you get <laughs> decline letters. Yeah. You know, but there was no declines on any of these guys. I mean, that just speaks volumes about how much respect oh, and love absolutely. they had for these guys. They were the family. That, that's the other thing is you got to realize dad went, to, my dad went to work for three hours, three hours, three hours, whatever, with Brian Wilson, Sinatra with Jan and Dean and all the guys, but they only work three, four hours and six hours at a time. And they do an album, an album in a day. That's how fast they were doing those days in the sixties, maybe an album a day or two. These guys come around, they're young, you know, they're the same age as the artist. Yeah. They're knocking it out in two, three, maybe a month, four, four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. They're taking their time doing this and then they're going on the road. So they bond there's relationships, there's friendships, you know, like Linda says in the movie, she goes, we didn't have it. We only had each other. Correct. Yeah. And then she also has a great line where she talks about how, you know, we would record and then we would tour and then we would record and then we would tour and then record and then we would tour, 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 tour. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's in the greatest thing was when she and Jackson Brown, when they first went on tour together, I think it was, or it might've been, I'm sure it was the same tour. They didn't realize when they went on tour with the bus, they didn't have sleeping bunks. They didn't know. No one ever thought about that. You know, so David Lindley, they stopped at a a, like a builder's appointment, whatever they had at the day, a hardware store. And then he built some bunks on top and he would sleep on top. It was just crazy. That's classic. That that is classic. So. Your film, uh, uh, Immediate Family, I got to, I, I had the great honor of um, meeting you and then watching your film in a room full of about 250 other people that were just yeah. captivated recently at the Newburyport Documentary Film Festival. Your film killed it, won Audience Choice Award. Pretty much every festival you enter, you come away with audience choice or audience favorite. Yeah, we, did, we did pretty well. You've you've done great. Tell me a little bit about the importance of the festival circuit uh, for you helping to get yeah. the film out there and now positioning it for 
a theatrical run yep. and it's going to be available for video on demand beginning December yep. uh, the 15th. Well, you know, it's funny because I always tell the festivals, you know, every audience, I say, listen, if it wasn't for these festivals, these films would never get made. I mean, there's nowhere for us. You know, it's a long shot to a to be able to get the money to, you know, because investors, well, how I'm going to give you how much and how are we going to get this on TV? Because you have no proving ground. And there's only very few festivals that like a Sundance or um, uh, Toronto, very few festivals have buyers, meaning the distributors go there looking for films. So that limits with the amount of films. If you don't get into those, uh oh, what do you do? You got to make noise and you got to prove yourself. And my feeling is what I, I did this with Wrecking Crew, you know, after two years of the Wrecking Crew of festivals, we, you know, did the same thing really well. The only reason we didn't get picked up in that year in 09 was we owed a lot of money hmm. because of the, you know, I could not sell that film unless I paid that off. And that was why I went on to a different method of raising the money. But with this film, we had investors. We This film was already done. You have to sell it. How do you sell it? You get people talking about it. Yeah. You win awards. You try to win awards. Um, I know the film will always... The, once you win a couple awards, I know the film's going to be good. Right. Meaning, like, we did our job. That's all we can do. Now we have to get in front of people. Have you, know, you noticed any um, uniformity or or uh, or common characteristics around how the film is received by particular oh, audiences? Absolutely, I absolutely. I mean, this. I mean, for me, it's fun. People say, "Don't you get sick and tired of going to these festivals?" No, it's for me. It's like I like to watch every audience. And the yeah. thing is, I go and you remember, I I want to meet people. Yeah, I love going to Newburyport. You know, and. It, it, I love to go in these places. I've never been. I would never go there because I don't know about these places. Yeah. So the audiences are the same. There were the great thing about the audiences. Listen, we already know the demographic. It's going to be fifty plus. Sure. Yeah. You know, maybe forty plus. Yeah. Um, but once they get there, they laugh at the same things. They, they, you can see them singing along on the same things. And there's always the same things that happen, and that to me is. You know, we're okay. You um, know, it's funny you say that. You know, you're about your demographic, the forty and the fifty plus. But it's also amazing, and it's you know probably by osmosis and the fact that I guarantee right now anybody listening to this podcast, pod, pause the podcast for a moment and go find a classic rock radio station. And I'm going to say there's a ninety five percent chance you're going to hear a song playing on a classic rock radio station that is in immediate family. Yeah. But the other thing that's amazing, like my, my brother is, is uh, an, also a huge music fan. He sends me a text a couple of days ago saying his son, who's now a freshman in college, sent him a text the other day saying, I just heard this great song. Did you ever hear this guy, Jackson Brown? <laughs> so yeah. there's a, like, I no, bet if you they, filled I, your absolutely. audience with 20 somethings, they would agree. be blown away. This is the greatest thing for me for both films, watching people. I watch generations for like the first one. I always remember when you start showing the film, it was my the first film was like, oh, my God, I love this song. When I was in high school, 1967, da, 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 da. it was great. Yeah, da, da. Then it was like people would say, boy, I love this song. My parents love this song. This was their favorite album. Now it's 
my grandparents love this song. I love this song because my grandparents play it. Yeah. But this music is generational. And that's the great thing. The great thing about this, this music, and I'm not talking about these guys and this genre. Yep. It is multi-generational because it is passed down, but and it can be heard in movies, can be heard in, you know, on radio, but it's also goes across political lines, sure. gender lines, and that's what's pretty cool. Yeah, it is most definitely a great unifier. Yeah, I mean, it's the only thing that unifies really is music. Without- and it's just, you know, there. if you come away with one adjective to describe the whole experience, it's just joy. And you can tell that there's joy on the part of the, you know, world famous musicians that, that you have talking on camera around love, their experience. They love what they do. Yeah. I mean, we should be so lucky. I'm very lucky to be where I'm at right now, doing what I love to do right now. Right. Um, I wish I had done it earlier. You know, I was in the film business for many years, but I just, I, I just love what watching what they do. I just love what I do. But you know, watching growing up with a musician, loving what he did. You know, I never got to that point. I never musician and actors, they work at their art, especially musicians. You have to really work at it because you don't, as my father said, you get lucky in golf. You don't get lucky in music. Meaning like you just, you got to learn how to play. Right. And these guys have reached a pinnacle of success that only a few can touch. So I mentioned the December 15th date when immediate family will be uh, available for video on demand, uh, streaming, et cetera. But there's also a theatrical run. So tell me a little bit about that and how those cities came together. And are they still are more being added on? Yeah, There's still more being added. I think we're at to 65 right now. Wow. It's all across the country from um, all across North America, from Toronto to to Vancouver to uh, Modesto. I mean, it's all over. Um, one night only, some of them, on uh, basically December 12th. So, and th- some of them will last longer. Some will be for a few more days or a week. But the the basically what we do now is, or what they do, meaning Magnolia, is they try to get the buzz going. You mm-hmm. show it theatrically for one day, and then this is a chance to be, and it is, as you saw that audience, there is nothing like a live audience with this film. Absolutely. And and that, you know, that that in theater sound system it, oh, is yeah. such a huge component. It's so much fun. So my goal is we make a lot of noise on the 12th and that weekend. Then we hopefully get picked up for some streaming, you know, whether it'll be Netflix or Hulu or whatever. But the goal is to really, you know, go for it. And for the, you know, that weekend. I mean, and- it's fun. I, I'm and if people want to get a, an idea of whether or not there's going to be a, a theatrical screening in a in a theater near you, go to immediatefamily.com. Nope. Nope. Uh, immediatefamilyfilm.com. Immediatefamilyfilm.com. Because if you go to immediatefamily.com, you'll get a uh, marriage therapist. <laughs> Yeah, so, you definitely don't want to do that. Very different well, experience. You can't lose, but the thing is, either way, you're going to be a winner. <laughs> I guess depending yeah. on the state of your marriage. Exactly. You know what? Marriage, I'm thinking that maybe you know what your 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 marriage might be better served by going to your fa- to your movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It is a good point. Yeah. Yes. 
it's cheaper <laughs> most definitely it's cheaper and you know you know it's got a beat yeah yeah many tedesco thank you and then then everybody's you know if they follow us on immediate family film on uh facebook and all the other great things the great thing is we're showing the outtakes now that's what i'm doing is putting outtakes out oh that's fantastic yeah uh, so it's yeah. good just just more to see and more to uh, more to enjoy experiencing yeah. denny thank you for your time thank you for this film this is uh, this has been fun thanks michael 